0: I'm Tim Ritter And I'm Nate Hansen. And we are Almost Heretical You can find us online at almostheretical.com Yeah, welcome back to the show We've been doing this series on hell And this is part three So go back and listen to the other ones But we uh, we want to jump right in here Because we have a lot to get to So, um, we where we ended the last one was You said, Tim, that it's something about like we need to keep let I me mean, just i'll just play what you said right here
1: the gehenna idea is that all of us christian or non-christian will will one day face accountability from from a higher power than ourselves and if and if we are an evil victimizer of those around us uh, we will have to deal with that but so my
0: question for that would be aren't we all Aren't we all evil victim like aren't aren't we all that? Aren't we all evil? And so then how do we know what the level of evilness is to get you to hell versus you know what I'm saying? So how do you figure that one out?
1: Well, I mean, my answer is just yes and and no. So I can explain that more in a, a bit, but like No, we're good. How do you answer that question? <laughs> yes and no. Like yeah,
0: no, we're gonna need more. Um how do I well what you had said the last couple episodes is what would make it heaven for me. And which sounds really new agey. Like I get to create my own heaven and decide who I want to keep out. Um, but is that just what it is? Like whatever I come up with is what heaven is, is that that's the amount of evilness I'm okay with. But then what if someone else is okay with more or less? Do you see what I'm saying?
1: Yeah. Well, and I think you're kind of asking two very close, but slightly different questions in terms of, uh, like where do we draw the line between evil and not evil? like pure enough, right? Like where, where is that line drawn? And then related to that question, but I do think it's slightly different is the question of like, aren't we all in some way, uh, an oppressor, a victimizer, an abuser? Doesn't the line of good and evil like runs through all of us, right? Like, isn't right. Isn't that, uh, true. And I like, that's where I just think we've bought into, uh, it's partly w- why I rail against, um, caricature ideas of forgiveness in Christianity, that I know people often hear me as like trying to remove the role of f- forgiveness from Christianity or the the roles of mercy or love. But I just think it's because what we do is it's kind of like this all or nothing thing. Um, like either it's a, I use the term a lot, blanket forgiveness, where like everything is just ignored. Uh, it, that's what forgiveness means. Or there is no forgiveness and we're all just kind of on our own to deal with stuff. And I just like, that's not how I live my life, you know, like if Monique my wife hurts my feelings in some way or if Camden my son does something he's not supposed to do like there are (laughs) degrees uh, of response there are degrees of wrongdoing right I can uh, acknowledge that certain things are much more wrong (laughs) than other things we all intrinsically feel that you know, one sin is not as sinful as the next, as much of Protestant world has presented them. Um,
0: That's great, but like, don't we need some sort of a, a line for, for knowing? Don't we need to know? Like, and I guess here's why I'm, I'm getting at this is because I can see why it's really convenient to just say, we're all terrible, wretched sinners from even before we're born, original sin. That's, that, that works really well, as they say, that preaches, right?
1: It's easy, it's an easy way to do the math. Like, you have to draw the line somewhere, so let's just, like, draw it h- here. So if you draw it, you know, someone asked. <laughs> actually wrote in a question asking, have you guys ever encountered Christian spaces where people actually predict the percentage or number of people who will be saved and unsaved? Oh, and right, yeah. he referenced that in his church. Uh, kind of the going rate was about 10% would be in and 90% would be out. I mean, no one ever said it, but that's sort of what I always thought, I guess. Like it's, you know, and I saw your response to,
0: to that person. It was, uh, uh, you know, you always thought it was gonna be a low, a low number. And that's what I always heard too. It's the, the, the road is narrow, right? That leads to life and few find it. I mean, that's the verse. It's a, it's a difficult small path and only, there's only a few that are up to
1: snuff is sort of how I always thought of it. There's no only the the true radicals. Yeah. We never talked numbers, but I think we all would have been comfortable with the 10%, like <laughs> if if you
0: forced us to to write it, it seemed, down. I think that would be high with my world, yeah. That would
1: have been high. Wow. Uh, I think
0: I think in the church that I started, like I think we all just kind of assumed we were the 1%. <laughs> yeah.
1: Anyway, like when I say it's easy to run the numbers if you just try to boil all of humanity down to a simple calculus of like that's what total depravity is right and total depravity is one of those things that, in my opinion is like a half truth and there are forms of each say yeah none of us are, tr- are truly wonderfully perfectly loving human beings we all do things to hurt one another okay cool there's another form of total depravity that's basically like we're all worthless uh pieces of crap uh why would we go that far to do that well it's because it makes it makes the this tension that we all feel like where the heck would we draw the line it makes it easier to just say you draw it around everybody but or then you draw the line the other way and and i know i've sounded like the conservative preacher doing it, but this but this is why i'm not compelled by truly liberal views of universalism that posit that basically either there is no judgment there's no accountability for human behavior or everybody essentially just gets off the hook because that's what a loving god would do and I just, like, again, you use the Hitler example and you go, okay, <laughs> no, like, I'm not Hitler. And don't make the claim, the moral claim, that me lying when I was five or me lying when I was 30 uh, is the same as what Hitler did because that makes morality defunct. It means that there are no functional morals if you're making that claim. It means that there is no, no idea or possibility of justice if I and Hitler should be dealt with the same way uh, and it's also not good news for me to tell me that Hitler will be himself and will be able to have the kind of power that he had uh, forever and ever and ever so uh, for me I, like I think that tensions is there we're stuck with it. a lot of what we'll do on this episode is show that, Uh, how little consensus there was in the minds of various biblical authors, uh, which means we probably shouldn't try to reduce, uh, again, to use the the metaphor, reduce the math uh, to oversimplify it. Um, But to use a Hitler example, for me, you know, we kind of talked about, like, what are the possibilities? Like, right, if we just play the thought experiment for your heaven, Nate, like what could be done with Hitler to make it heaven for you? Kind of where I come down on is like, I don't know if I need God to like punish Hitler. I don't think I need God to torture Hitler. I think what I need is that Hitler can't have power. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So if, if Hitler is going to remain the kind of person who will see, who will seize power to use it to hurt and abuse other people, then he has to be kept from doing that. And I want there to be someone more powerful than Hitler, a being more powerful to keep Hitler out of power. Now, Hitler can sit next to me if he has no power to do anything to me or those I love. I'm fine with him being there, (laughs) right? Uh, But the question is, like, in what kind of human existence, what kind of world could we live in where evil people either don't have the power to do evil? And I think that's where you just get these basic ideas of imprisonment and separation, right? You take those that would do harm and you keep them away from, from those that we want to protect. Uh, that's one kind of core idea in this whole hell conversation is that of separating (laughs) abusers from victims. Um, and and then that separation is one form of keeping that person from the power to, to do evil to others. So that's what I feel like emotionally I need if I'm going to conceptualize (laughs) some sort of afterlife where all of human society somehow uh, is reborn. Uh, But we all got to figure that out for ourselves. I like that.
0: Hey, I'll go to your heaven Mm -hmm. because then ultimately you've reduced that person, that evil person to uh, someone who just has bad ideas um, and isn't able to really do anything with those ideas other than hurt themselves. Um, Right. Which that, that feels very CS Lewis. It's basically the crazy guy on the, bus that is saying <laughs> terrible stuff about the jews or whatever and it, that's all it is it's not someone who then has is leading this large movement against those people right
1: like, yeah so it it makes it very benign and it's one, like if i think in those terms i can think uh i think pretty pragmatically about myself and say that there are things as i am now as i've been for most of my adult life there are, are tendencies I have, for instance, I often struggle with wanting to grab social power to feel like I'm in control of a situation, whether that's in my family or uh, a social environment, that I would want heaven to be a place where I am not allowed to, to do that, right? I also want to be the kind of person who doesn't do that. That's why I want that place, right? So then you get into views of, of heaven and hell that are transformational. Uh, where we are, you know, like Paul's writing, we are to become <laughs> those kind of people. And Dallas Willard's kind of famous idea is we're not going to become someone we don't want to become. Yep. So I, I would like a world that restrains me from being the versions of me that I don't want to be and, and helps me and, and, and uh, keeps me accountable to being the most loving and, and decent and just versions uh, of myself. But then you just come back to the same tension of like, what do we do with those who never want to be that kind of person, right? And then you have to envision some world where they are just restrained uh, from being able to do what they actually do want to do, especially if it's murdering millions of Jews. Okay, so I know like, we'll probably come back to this in episodes that aren't on hell because this tension of sort of where do you draw the line, I just think it's inherent not just in Christianity, it's inherent in any... Uh, any worldview, any way of thinking about how to deal with uh, evil. Uh, But let's kind of move on. Nate, I would love, uh, I think this is always helpful, uh, for you to try to do your best 45-second recap of kind of the first two episodes and what what kind of ground we covered.
0: Sure. So in the first episode on Hell, we talked about sort of philosophized. That's not a word. (laughs) Is it a word? I use it. Oh. Uh okay. Well, we got into the philosophy. We just had a chat about what options are out there um for this place and for what needs to happen. Is it punishment? Is it torture? Like what what could God do to take care of this problem of separating these evil people uh, not letting them harm um others anymore. So we kind of just talked about that. We got into a lot of um what other people, um influential church uh fathers and leaders over the last couple thousand years have said about hell and um, we saw that there's quite a variance of ideas and lots of opinions that today we would consider almost theoretical but we're not considered that in their time and then part two we started talking about like hey what is the what is the what are the biblical writers saying um and where do we get some of the ideas that we we currently have and uh what are maybe some better ways to think about this and so yeah so where do you want to go today
1: yeah, so, you know, part of the reason they separated it out this way is I think for, for anybody who uh, treats the Bible as a source of how they think about these kinds of religious ideas, I think it's really important to have both conversations at once, the philosophical side and the scriptural side, as a way to, to keep your interpretations in check from becoming toxic. Right. Um, So I think, you know, what when I say, Nate, like do a thought experiment, like how would you create your heaven? I know for people like so many, it triggers the like, you know, you're just making God in your own image and you're just redefining good and evil for yourself. Like you are the book of judges, (laughs) like all of that stuff.
0: Yeah. On that, I got some feedback from some listeners um, when I asked them, like, what happens when you raise some of these questions or push back on things like what do you what do you hear back from from others who maybe aren't in the same place that that you're at and um so i just wanted to read a few of these so someone said i have heard criticisms of modern quote-unquote millennial churches focusing too much on the love of god and not ever speaking of the wrath and justice of god saying that there's too much trying to feel good in
1: church and not enough trying to change the way we live um Yeah. And then Tanner said, it seems to me that eternal torment is always conflated with God's justice. How else would God deliver justice to the victims of the Holocaust if Hitler isn't tormented eternally? And relation to that, that's where I just said, yeah, I don't need him to be tormented, but I do need him to be restrained in some way.
0: Right, right. Uh, Here's another one. Um, Sean said, so much pushback. Let's see. It starts with, quote, you are making God in your own image. Or why can you not see that God is holy and he cannot tolerate sin? You are not reading the Bible literally, but in whatever way you want. What is the point of salvation if it isn't from hell? So that's kind of, and and I've heard that. We've all, I think, heard feedback like that, that you're just crafting God into whatever you want him to be. But what's the truth? Like, what does the Bible actually say about this? Um, and so that's where I think it's really helpful to actually look at those biblical passages and realize there's not a whole lot there. And we've, we've done a whole ton with the little that is there to kind of build up this big image of what hell is and exactly what's going to happen.
1: Right. So what we'll do now is we'll kind of move forward with more kind of Bible, uh, I don't know, Bible study for lack of a better term, looking at this kind of scriptural, uh, ideologies. But what I want to do is hold that kind of philosophical consideration, uh, or even thinking like, what are the possible ways to even imagine an afterlife or uh, a final judgment? Um, and, Part of what we'll see is that various biblical authors imagined this differently, and there was not widespread agreement. As we said before, there's no book of hell. There's no point in the scripture where anybody sits down to try to teach a doctrine of hell. So what we're doing is not is not trying to learn about some doctrinal teaching. We're trying to read through the text to see what the author was thinking and trying to communicate. To try to see what the various authors were depicting in their head when they thought about judgment and where we go when we die. Uh, And what we'll see is (laughs) several of them thought very different things. And so, A, that'll mean there's room for us to not figure it all out. It means, B, we should hold all our ideas of hell open-handedly. And then C, I think what we'll see is much of the way we think about hell has very little to do with what the biblical authors actually thought and were trying to communicate. It has more to do with the way those ideas developed over the history of the church. And people tried to reduce and simplify uh, a complex variety of ideas into one cohesive thing. And then we turn those into famous works of art like Dante's Inferno. Uh and created this singular depiction of we go up to heaven down to hell uh, and so basically i'm going to try to help free us from that oversimplified and often toxic uh view where it'll take us is going to be a little messy and kind of open um but that's actually i think more uh, faithful to uh, what the bible is actually talking about
0: okay so where should we head first in the bible to kind of get into this
1: well so first I just want to fulfill uh, a promise that has yet gone unfilled which is to talk about Tartarus all <laughs> oh, right that
0: pop-tart startup from episode two
1: yeah it's such a small piece I feel like if I don't cover it up front I'll just forget it once again um, so okay we talked about before how there are basically two questions one is how is God going to fix the world and that question leads to the idea of a day of judgment and Gehenna is a word is a name of a valley that was outside of Jerusalem that became a hyperbolic metaphor for uh, for God's judgment. So Gehenna, Gehenna is the word that when Jesus gets angry, especially at religious leaders, and wants to th- to threaten them and say that you will not get away with this thing forever, there will be a day where you are held accountable for this thing. He threatens them with the metaphor of being thrown into the trash heap, the burning trash heap of Gehenna. Second question is, okay, before that happens, what happens if I die, right? And we said back in the Old Testament, it's the Hebrew word sheol. That word just gets translated into the Greek word Hades, but also conflated with the Greek idea and mythology around Hades, where this is basically the temporary holding place that dead spirits or sort of half-lives go to, uh, to dwell. Tartarus— is a word and idea relating to an entirely separate question, a third question, uh, which is related to all the kind of crazy cosmology that we got into back in the first 10 episodes of the podcast or so about how there are actually a plethora of divine beings, spirit beings who are made of spirit, who live in the heavens, but who have been given reign over the nations of the world.
0: And if that sounds crazy,
1: go back to listen to our intro series where we talk about that stuff. Okay, keep going. Right, and then you, you have a specific dilemma related to these beings because they are immortal in nature. In the, the cosmology, these are immortal spirit beings. They do not have earthen, enfleshed bodies, so they cannot be killed like creatures or earthly creatures. So the question is, when you have evil, Elohim, spirit, heavenly beings— for instance, those who came down and raped women, apparently, in Genesis 6 uh, to kind of wage war on humanity, how are they dealt with? Right? How do you restrain uh, evil in the form of immortal beings? So, like when we use the Hitler example, right? We talked about God could kill him, God could keep him alive, but torture him forever, you know, all those different things. Mm. Well, killing these beings is not on the table. Because they don't die, they're immortal. So Tartarus, and, and this is even with Greek culture, which was not one of uh, Israel's direct neighbors, they had their own world where there's a pantheon of gods, there's an underworld, there's this kind of like mountaintop uh, paradise where the gods live. Uh, and part of their cosmology was where evil gods were imprisoned was a place called Tartarus. So the idea is you can't actually kill them, so you just have to put them in a prison. Okay. So that's what Tartarus is. It's the, the place in Greek mythology where gods go to be imprisoned. So we saw this. only used one time in the New Testament. It's used in 2 Peter, and he's using the imprisonment of evil gods by, in his head, because he's part of Israel's Judeo-history, He thinks that that Yahweh is the one who imprisoned them in order to help preserve uh, humanity. He compares that and then uses Sodom and Gomorrah, which wasn't put in prison but was burned down. Those two things are types that Peter puts forward as to how God will heal the world eventually by judging evil people. So even right there, just in one section in 2 Peter 2, you have peter using a case study of sodom and gomorrah being burned down and destroyed as one way of imagining how god will treat the hitlers of the world and you have him referencing essentially the genesis 6 and sort of the shared cosmology of their evil gods and yahweh has imprisoned them held them so that they can't get out and (laughs) hurt people as a second way of imagining the way God will treat the Hitlers of the world. So literally, in Peter's mind, he's not even trying to understand the mechanics, right? Like, he's literally just saying, use these, these things that we all believe. Like, basically, he's, he's speaking to the world that all believes that there are evil gods that are in prison somewhere. And his point is, therefore, don't lose hope that God will one day vindic- vindicate you and will deal with the people who are hurting you. And simultaneously, don't you go out there and do evil to other people, uh, because God will deal with you as well. Hey, Brian, do you know anyone that was once a teenage fundamentalist? Troy, you know that I was, because you and I have a podcast called I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist. I did know that. But you know what I find myself asking these days? No, I don't, but I think you're going to tell me. What about all those things that church gave us definite answers for? What are we supposed to think about all those things now? Well, funnily enough, that's what we're doing for Season 5 of I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist. Ooh, Brian, I sense the Lord at work here. Mm, He works in mysterious ways. And we are going to unpack these things. We're going to find out what we do think about them now. So tune in to Season 5 of I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist, the official podcast for the Azusa Street Revival. (laughs) <laughs> I'm, I'm not quite sure that's true but it is available wherever you get your podcasts <laughs>
0: okay so he's just using it to get to a a bigger better point that he wants to make not
1: so much to talk about the mechanics of how that all works but just to get to that point okay so yeah well and I want to just point out like in the New Testament in English translations this word "Tartarus" is translated hell but that's telling us that there is one place and one way that God is going to deal with evil. Right. But that's not what Peter's doing. Peter's like, oh, there's this this other place. And I don't, he's not trying to explain where it is. And then there's this other thing that God did over here. And, like, somehow these are all case studies for why we should be able to hope that one day justice will win out. That's all he's doing. He's not making a case for some sort of doctrine of a hell. Uh, he didn't even use <laughs> the the word Hades or the word Gehenna, which get used other places. So, this is just step one in saying let's let's realize this thing is more complex and less universally agreed upon uh, than the way we talk about it today.
0: What about the whole? Um, people saying that we're just creating a hell on earth and that's what that's what uh, Jesus was talking about when he talked about gehenna like you're going to you do that you're going to just make a hell for yourself or you're going to create a hell for other people here but it's all about sort of the here and now like is there any is there any place for for that idea as well
1: I think yeah i mean i think a lot of people have have pointed there because in the last few hundred years of protestant christian tradition we've so extracted Christianity from the here and now it's all been about where we go afterward. Right. Uh, but I just think it's both, it's always been about both. And so if it's just about, you know, Jesus saying like, you know, live well now, love your neighbors now, uh, do good goodness and justice now. Well, that's only good news for those of us that actually have the power, socioeconomic power, (laughs) relational power to live pretty decent lives here and now. Right for the millions and billions of people around the world who need somebody else to bring about justice and decency in their lives. Uh, that's not that great news if it's just a command to like, do good and make this place a heaven. Yeah. But also the whole you know, caricature that like we should just get the heck out of here uh, and burn down the earth. You know, st- I remember you and I, Nate, the organization we worked at, there were uh, <laughs> moments where literally people would take recycling and throw it in the trash, and say, this place is all going to burn up anyway, and use not recycling as an act of faithfulness. They thought they were demonstrating how Christian they were Mm. to be willing to destroy the planet. This was just, what, eight years ago? Is that what it was? Yeah. In San Francisco, like one of the capitals in the United States of like modern (laughs) environmental movements. Mm -hmm. Uh, And what it meant for these people to like, uh, and I mean, we were friends with them to like beat their fists on their chest and like pump themselves out and display their, uh, their brave uh, Christian faithfulness was to willfully destroy the environment. Um, So there's that thing too, of like, we're just going to escape and get out of here. So who the heck cares what happens in this life? And I just think that's toxic in every single
0: way. I hope that's becoming more fringe now. Uh, you know, you hear a lot more about the new creation and about heaven on earth, and fortunately, Tim Mackey and the Bible Project have done um, a lot to, I think, bring even pretty conservative churches along in that. So um, I think we're we're starting to see more of uh, a change there, but it's still there's still a ways to go.
1: I hope, but I mean, how many millions of people will like tune in and cheer every time Trump says, "Look, it's cold out, climate change is a hoax," you know, <laughs> like. I hope, you're right, but I think we have a really stinking long ways to go. Uh, But let's not get off on that tangent because I'll get too depressed and then we won't get anywhere. That's way more depressing for me than the topic of hell, actually. (laughs) Uh, Okay, so one other, uh, we'll go through a few of these. One other that I found fascinating, and I uh, didn't see this until more recent studies, was uh, even in the synoptic Gospels. So we'll get to John and then we'll get to Paul in a little bit. But even within the synoptic gospels, so it's probably familiar to most people, most scholars think that Mark was written first. It's kind of the shortest, most basic of the three synoptic gospels. And then Luke and Matthew uh, were working off of the material that is in Mark, kept a lot of the same stuff, changed some, uh, entered some of their own into it. Uh, So when you compare differences between one of those three Gospels and the other, it reveals sort of like what was the author thinking? Why were they making this point differently? That sort of thing. So one really interesting thing that some scholars have pointed out is it seems like Luke and Matthew have totally different conceptions on the timing and sequence of the hell ideas, both Gehenna and Hades and the questions of what happens when we die uh, Hmm. and when will God bring about final judgment so we kind of talked about before there's one view which is that basically Hades is this temporary dwelling place you see that it's prominent in the book of Revelation where it talks about eventually toward the end of the book of Revelation all that are in Hades will be given up uh, and and brought to judgment and so the idea is that's why Jesus has the keys to Hades to let everybody out because they've been hanging out there for so long. And then everybody's raised up to some sort of judgment. And then you either go to essentially the paradise uh, or uh, Gehenna judgment. So the idea is like you die and then you go to Hades to wait around and then judgment happens. And then after judgment happens is kind of the parsing out to determine you know whether you're rewarded or uh, held accountable. But then uh, there's a separate view which basically eliminates that in between. And it's basically as soon as you die, uh, instead of waiting around for the day of final judgment, you experience some sort of judgment uh, right here and then. And it wasn't until I saw that, uh, that Luke basically believes the latter and Matthew believes the former that some interesting texts in uh, Luke specifically started to make sense. Give me a couple, yeah. Yeah, so uh, like one passage you have in Matthew that doesn't show up in Luke, uh, Matthew includes Gehenna multiple times. That word gets used a bunch. We talked about last time how Gehenna is essentially the metaphorical picture for the, the judgment thing, which is the thing that comes later. Uh, and Matthew, you've got a whole bunch of them. And one of them... Uh, is the one I know you and I have talked a lot about, Nate, and was really formative for you, is Matthew twenty-five thirty-two, 32, uh, where it says, all are raised to judgment and then separated as sheeps and goats. So, you know, sheeps go one way, goats go the other. But the idea is, people are dead, everybody's raised up, then they're separated and receive their right uh, reward. And Matthew there is just drawing from, from Malachi 3 and 4. Uh, Luke only has one of these sort of judgment threats. That's like, all of these kind of sound like basically, you know, don't fear this, fear, you know, God who can throw your body in Gehenna. That's kind of the idea, right? Right. So Luke only has one uh, reference to Gehenna and it's in chapter 12 and it's used very generally. And the point is basically, don't fear man who can do harm to you, but fear God who can... Uh, throw you in Gehenna, what he's doing is he's talking basically to his disciples saying like, don't do the unjust thing because you're scared of what somebody will do to you. Uh, Be scared that God will hold you accountable. He's not uh, treating this as a separate timing. He doesn't get into the timing. He just uses it as this like very broad generic term of like, you know, do what's right or God will... Uh, we'll deal with you, uh, with it. Uh, Matthew is the one where we get this sense of like, okay, there's going to be this final day, and then we'll all like stand before God, and we'll have this account, and then we'll be separated out, and then we'll be sent to our our place. You don't get that in Luke. You just have that in Matthew. And then what you have in Luke that doesn't show up in Matthew at all is the story of uh, the rich man and Lazarus, which you know people have argued about forever. It's like, is it a parable? Was it real? How does it relate to Jesus' friend, Lazarus, shows up in John? Uh, but one notable thing when we're having this conversation is the rich man, Lazarus, in Luke 16, it says the two die and are buried and immediately go to their places. So there it says the rich man goes to Hades, where he's very unhappy, and the, the poor, abused, and neglected uh, homeless man goes to what's called Abraham's bosom and is comforted. There's no holding. There's no in-between the, in Luke's mind as he's telling this parable. And this isn't, again, giving a prescription for the mechanics of hell. But what it is revealing is like this is how Luke's conception of uh, the basics, right? Like what happens when you die to try to make this picture to tell people to not be unjust and neglectful to their poor neighbors is that they immediately go to different places and the key piece is that there is a chasm set between the two. And then, of course, you have the tail end of that parable where uh, the rich man is like, let me go back and tell my family that this is what's going to happen so that they won't follow the same route. And uh, and then basically the, the parable ends with saying, you don't didn't listen. They didn't haven't listened already to the prophets, to basic decency and justice. They're not going to listen even if you warn them. So it's revealing some of the basic element is like you need a separation. Uh <laughs> the rich, abusive man. That's where people go. There's like, okay, so
0: he's saying right there that you can go to the prophets, you can go to the the Bible to, to see that this is that this parable is true, right? That this is how it's going to be. Like, that's how it would be explained.
1: Why is that not the way it is? So all, all I'm bringing up for, I think what the passage is actually saying is not so you could see how this is, this mechanically or sequentially, this is how it's going to happen. It's to say you will be dealt with. It's the classic Jesus teaching of those who have... What they good things now in this life and keep from sharing them with others will be deprived of good things in the next. And those who have been kept from having a good life now will be comforted and vindicated. The victims now will be raised to power and, and given a good life in the future. The empires and emperors and rulers of the world who have lived their good life at the expense of others now. Uh, it's a reversal. That's the basic element here. Is this is ju- It's a picture of justice. Justice is a reversal of... Of the injustice that is happening now, so the basic idea is, you all knew what you're doing was unjust. Any Jew knew that you should fear God, that God would enact justice one day. You still wanted to live an unjust life towards your neighbor. My point here is that the way Luke is getting that point across, and Luke is all about social justice, especially as it relates to money and and uh, sharing of wealth. The basic point here is that in Luke's mind, there's no uh, like holding period. He doesn't say that the rich man and Lazarus die, go to Hades, both of them together, to wait out you know, for a few thousand years or whatever until uh, judgment happens, and then judgment comes. In Luke's mind, it's immediate. In Matthew's mind, there's a clear holding pattern, which explains one thing for me that I had, had always questioned. I don't know if you had, Nate, which is the whole piece in Luke that's only in Luke, where Jesus says to one of the beggars on the cross— or sorry, one of the criminals on the cross. You'll be with me. Today you'll be with me in paradise. Yeah. Yeah. Is as we're having this conversation and you're thinking, okay, one view of hell is, you know, or an afterlife is that everybody dies, goes to the grave and waits there collectively (laughs) to be assigned to either the good place or the bad place, whatever, regardless of how we're thinking about that right now. If that's the paradigm, then how is it Luke is saying that Jesus said, that someone would go with him to paradise today. And my answer to that question now that I've kind of looked into some of the scholarship is Luke doesn't have that waiting period in his mind. Matthew would have never had Jesus saying this. He might have said, don't worry, you'll be with me in paradise some nebulous amount of years from now when you return or when I return to bring about judgment. But in Matthew's head, there's no such thing as dying and going directly either to paradise or heaven or to uh, judgment. You basically go into a holding pattern. So the details can be confusing. I'm I'm using a few examples between Matthew and Luke to point out that even this idea of the timing and and the, the two words, Hades and Gehenna, are connected to different ideas of timing that even Matthew and Luke have very different senses of what happens to us when we die and when judgment happens and how judgment happens. Uh, They both are holding to a view that God will uh, make things right in this great reversal one day, but they both disagree on when exactly that will happen and what our experience in between death and that point will be. And so they literally take some of the same material, source material, most likely from Mark, and then they add different things into it that the other one is unwilling to add into theirs because that's not how they think of it. And we have both of those in our Bible called Gospels. And there's this effort to
0: push everything together in the Bible into one clear understanding of what the Bible teaches on something. And I think that's where you get some of this stuff. You have to combine it all, right? And then you Mm -hmm. get this one vision of what hell is. And I guess what you're saying is even two key uh, biblical authors like... Matthew and Luke don't agree or would have different conceptions of that. And maybe they're okay with that even.
1: Totally. So if you are claiming that you have the biblical view of exactly the order of events or even the sequence of kind of where and how uh, post death happens, you cannot possibly be quote unquote biblical because either Matthew or Luke, if they were here, would disagree with you (laughs) because they don't even agree uh, with themselves. So the only point I'm making right now is like (laughs) uh, lighten your grip on what you think you know and what you think the Bible is is saying in one sense. So uh, next one, and and I'll just repeat myself here. Uh, Paul, the apostle, in all of the epistles we have of Paul, and I'll just like, you know, even if I'm saying Paul wrote them all, (laughs) we can get into that argument. Right. Say Paul wrote them all. Does not mention hell one time. By that I mean does not mention Gehenna, Hades, or Tartarus. Let me say that again. Paul the Apostle, in all known writing that we have access to, and in the entire Bible, never mentions hell one time. <laughs> this is the same guy who we built the Romans Road out of, right?
0: I was, I was going to say, like, I thought, I guess I always imagined that's where the Romans Road... You know, kind of ends there, and you have the the two. I always picture the um, the two chasms and the cross in between. Which, again, I always had a problem with the big hump of the cross in the middle. Like, how do you get you know ladder or something to get over that part? You know, it's not this perfect bridge. Anyways,
1: in those drawings, was the was the chasm hell? Like, was there like fire at the bottom of it?
0: Oh, I don't know. That's it's kind of a. Uh, you know the paper didn't go that far. So choose um, your own chasm drawing. <laughs> it didn't. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure some people added. One second, let me just take a peek here. Let me see what what's that called? It's called the um, cross chasms. It's called the bridge. I think it's called the bridge. Okay, no fire on that way. Oh, separation on that one. Oh, this one's got. <laughs> look at this. How do I show this to you? Oh, I gotta share my screen. Um. Oh yeah, there it is. So that one's got uh, <laughs> hell and fire actually. Yeah. And that, and it has the sunshine.
1: Yeah, and then Revelation 21.8. Oh, gosh, this is wonderful. Nate, can you put this in our notes so everyone can see it? All right, I'll save the link.
0: Um, oh, here's another one. Uh, okay, this one's got, down at the bottom of the chasm, Valley of Your Sins. This one's got some blue flames. Let's see. Eternal Death at the bottom of this one. Fire at the foot of the cross on this one. Uh, nothing at the bottom of this one, just kind of the like... Roadrunner, where he falls off, you know, that kind of you don't know what's down there, just kind of the little poof of smoke as the roadrunner disappears off the screen. Okay, I think that's all. Basically, um, a mixture of fire, whether it's red, orange, or blue, and then uh, separation and some other stuff. Good
1: work. Good detective. Isn't the internet great?
0: It really is.
1: Okay, so uh, my favorite slash the worst of all those you sent is the one that has a man on one side. Uh, God is holy <laughs> on the other side with a quote of Psalm 99. Oh, wait, this could be just so ironic. It's the best. I'll have to look some of them in a sec. Uh, and then hell, the word with a bunch of flames uh, and an awesome graphic. And then in parentheses in red letters is Revelation twenty-one 21.8. Uh, which you know talks about evil people going into uh, the, the fires. But th- the sheer ironic thing is the one I brought up last time is just literally, what, nine verses before this is Revelation 20, verse 14, where it says, Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. So that's where I literally said, this is the verse that says hell was thrown into hell, mm. uh, yeah. meaning it will be destroyed and won't exist anymore. <laughs> so you're literally proof texting uh, a verse... To, to paint your little fiery picture of hell when nine verses earlier is a depiction that that same idea of hell won't exist because of Jesus. And that's but, been viewed
0: 150,000 times on YouTube with um, the vast majority <laughs> thumbs upping it.
1: I mean, YouTube? I didn't even know it's a video. I just thought it was a graphic.
0: Yeah. Uh, it's, it's a graphic from a YouTube video.
1: Um, I'm just so glad you found this graphic for me, Nate. Because there was one part in like the obscure section of my notes where I'm like, I know we're never going to get there, but I wish we had time. Uh, that was to bring up Psalm 99, and this uh, infographic uh, uses Psalm 99 as uh, in parentheses as like the proof text for the term "God is holy," which is on the right side. Everyone's the- seen this,
0: right? <laughs> it's the two like cliffs on either side, and then the cross fits perfectly down the middle, right? I just want to make sure we're
1: yeah. Uh, so this one, it's implying that because God is holy, that's why there is this fiery hell chasm in between uh, man and God. Uh, but the line it quotes is the last verse, verse nine from Psalm ninety-nine. I just happened to uh, uh, actually this is a longer story than you tell. I I just happened to go to church today with my family for the first time in two years, at an Episcopal church, and the reading today uh, included uh, Psalm ninety-nine. And I just thought, oh, there's a portion in here that's perfect to make my point on how we've oversimplified the idea of forgiveness and punishment. And it's literally the verse before this one that they proof texted. And it's, it's talking about uh, when Israel is brought out of uh, slavery. And it uh, says, he spoke to them from the pillar of the cloud. They kept his statutes and the decrees he gave them. And then verse 8, Lord our God, you answered them. You were to Israel a forgiving God though you punish their misdeeds. This is a bit of praise, and I just want to bring this up because it shows that how we've thought about forgiveness and punishment is so skewed because we've reduced it 100% one way or the other. Either you are forgiven or you are punished in hell forever. And clearly right here, the psalmist is is depicting God like any decent parent, right? Which is one of the the main uh, metaphors that you can punish in order to hold someone accountable for their actions, right? You can send your son to their room for a 30 minute timeout or two minute timeout or whatever and be considered a forgiving parent. Novel. (laughs) The point is not you forgave us and ignored all of our evil and just let us do what we wanted to do or you tortured us in hell forever. It's literally saying both and yet the very next verse uh, which is talking about exalting that God is what they used as a proof text for why there's a fiery chasm in between mankind and God and Uh, If we don't have Jesus, we will apparently live in that fiery chasm for all eternity. Yikes.
0: What do you think is the strongest case for that, for that fiery chasm where we'll live? Because I always go to the, it really is that parable of the Lazarus and the rich man, um, like if that is, if you extrapolate that out, and that is what hell, is, then I'm like, okay, I see where people got that. Even though there's other um, depictions,
1: you mean kind of why is fiery torment or the eternal conscious torment view? Why has that been so prominent? Yeah, I think the hard, the hardest passages are actually in Revelation, um, and it's where you get this like a fire, the the undying worm. Uh, it's just using such hyperbolic language um, and such symbolic language, right? It's all imagery, so that's why you have these. <laughs> Uh, metaphors of, of fire and whatnot, um, and then there's there's the wheat and the chaff one, which is a, another fire metaphor that ends up in Jesus' teachings, which is he's just teaching out of the Old Testament. Uh, that was a primary metaphor uh, because it's the perfect picture of of things that need to be separated uh, from one another. So it's just taking those visuals, right? Like Gehenna, it's a visual of a of a bad place where you don't want to be, <laughs> and it's making those uh, literal. Uh, predictions of the mechanics of what will happen to us. So what I'm trying to say is none of those are doing that. They're painting uh, they're painting mind pictures. Uh, none of them are trying to get to the mechanics. And when you see evidence of where they are thinking mechanics, there's actually quite uh, quite a difference. So back to uh, the loudest point and the takeaway is that the Apostle Paul never mentions a uh, hell. Uh, right. Neither does the entire Gospel of John mention hell. Uh, and when I say mention hell, no one in the Bible mentions hell, but these authors don't mention either Hades, Gehenna, or Hades, or yeah, okay. Any of that. So uh, why, <laughs> right? It, ironically, uh, what you have very clearly in Romans, the same book that's, that's made to make this little hell infographic, is very clearly that in Paul's mind, the thing, the problem that Jesus is resolving is death. Death is the problem. <laughs> it's the same as Hebrews 2 we, we talked about last time, that Jesus' victory liberates us from the fear of death that had been ensla- enslaving humanity for all time, that we're scared to die because dying sucks. And how did he do that? He did it by going into death, descending into the grave to Hades, uh, not in Paul's language, but is in the creeds and, and elsewhere, descending into the grave and being the pioneer through death. That by being resurrected, the first resurrected one, uh, that all those who are in Christ will also be resurrected. So that's Paul's whole point. (laughs) Uh, So it's like you you have even the Romans 6 one that people talk about all the time. The wages of sin is death. Well, of course, that gets turned into like the wage of sin means God wants to kill you, right? Like that's how that's interpreted. That's not what's said. But like we read that as if we say the wages of sin is hell. Paul doesn't even think about hell. The point is <laughs> we die, like we kill each other, we die, and then we don't know what happens after death, which is why none of us can agree well, on
0: Well, then it. couldn't you say the wages of doing good is death as well? You could, yeah, According but in, in
1: Paul's cosmology, we won't get into uh, this whole thing. He's saying like, why did we all, and this just goes back to Genesis 1 and 3, why did we start dying? It, it, it's the, In the cosmology, it has to do because we're banished from the tree of life, right? Yeah, true. There's yeah. a whole famous line that Tolkien said of like, Ooh. even death is a grace. Uh, he was just pulling from the Genesis stories of saying like, if we are evil people who who want to seize power in order to hurt one another, then being able to live forever would be the worst possible thing that could happen to us and the world around us. So that's the the basic core idea of the philosophy in Genesis 1, 2, and 3 is that humanity got thrust into a war for power by the serpent and the divine beings. And therefore, as a mercy to uh, to life, uh, God revoked their access to the tree of life. That's the you know don't even literalize that, that but that's the idea is is that living forever as uh, as evil people would be horrendous but right, right. my main point is that you read through all of Paul's writing and the the thing that this where this heads without Jesus it, it's not about torment it's not about a hell it's not even about a punishment it's about death so you got philippians 3:18 the enemies of cross of Christ whose end is destruction that's that's just how he says it. It's this kind of long, convoluted sentence, but he's talking about those who aren't s- saved to eternal life, to being able to live forever, are those who get destroyed, like they just die. We, we die. So that's so that's like annihilation. Annihilationism. So annihilation in that term is is making the assumption that God has that people have died. I don't think most people. I think know the Bible well enough to know that that the Bible is not saying God creates death, right? God created life. Uh, death was brought about because people do evil to one another. The idea is that God would raise people back to life. And then those who don't want to live in, in the heaven uh, kingdom of God in the annihilation idea that God would kill them again, uh, put an end to them. But there's a whole other range of views. Uh, some have used the term conditional immortality that would just say uh, if God's not going to bring back to life <laughs> someone just so they that God could kill them, right? Like, the point is what God grants in Christ is access to eternal life. Jesus is depicted as that tree of life in the Garden of Eden. And only those who aren't going to use that tree of life to beat up and kill and abuse other people will be granted access to it. It seems like a lot of guessing and
0: a lot of like, well, maybe it's this, maybe well, then, you know, why would you raise them back up to get like, we're probably wrong. We're probably wrong about it. And so I think because of that, like someone listening to this would go, well, then we just probably should go with the traditional view. Someone who's maybe skeptical would say, well, let's just go with the traditional view then because, but I guess what I would say is like, that's the, that seems to be even more guessing based on a couple different things that are said that are even different than other biblical writers would have said. Like, it just seems like a lot of guessing and maybe the point is not to put so much confidence in this idea of hell and focus on other things.
1: Totally. Yeah. So in Paul, you read through it, you know, there's death has been overcome. Death has lost its sting. Uh, Again, in Romans six, you get for we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. Uh, Especially, okay, I say if you're going to read one passage of the New Testament to try to best grasp some of the points of thinking where there actually is consensus amongst uh, biblical authors and then early, early Christians. It's f- 1 Corinthians 15. And Paul repeats over and over again in there that he, it's not that if Jesus, is not, he's not focusing on Jesus' death, he's focusing on the resurrection. And his point is that the problem is that we die and the solution is that through Jesus we've been given access to life. Basically, a second chance at life. So his point that he repeats over and over again is, if there is no resurrection, then this whole faith is worthless. It's futile. It's useless. It accomplishes nothing. If Jesus wasn't raised, he says, we're still in our sins. Not if Jesus didn't die on the cross and bleed, but if Jesus wasn't raised, <laughs> we're still in our sins. For Paul, the whole thing is about escaping death. You go to the Gospel of John, it's the same thing. Like, and how we don't—I mean, John 3:16, right? It's the most popular verse. What does John 3.16 say? That we shall not perish, but have everlasting life. It doesn't say, so we shall not be tortured forever uh, in eternity. Or it doesn't even say that, so God won't kill us. It says, so we won't, per- we won't die, but we'll have everlasting life. So the, the, the basic view here is that uh, most of us will die. But we will get a second chance of life because Jesus has actually overcome death. And interesting, Revelation is harder to figure out kind of how the author of Revelation is thinking about this stuff. But every single time Hades is used in the book of Revelation, it's paired with death. Death and Hades, death and Hades, death and Hades. It's he. The author has the same problem in his, his mind. It gets into all this uh, crazy other... Uh, imagery that's pulling from Second Temple literature like the Book of Enoch and stuff uh, to depict uh, these ideas. But the point is that Jesus has beat death. So if you back way up to what we're talking about, uh, <laughs> there were two questions that I said framed uh, the ideas that we have both lumped into hell. But there were also two kinds of fear in... Uh, in the New Testament, in Christian uh, theology, one is the fear of dying. And that fear is con- considered negative and is something that Jesus has overcome. So the idea is that basically all humans are scared to die. And, and this development of belief in a, in a life after death, uh, based on the idea of being resurrected into a new kingdom that that belief is what Jesus staked his life on and then proved to be a reliable belief. So if you are able today or tomorrow to believe that Jesus was resurrected from the dead... Was this and- an altar call? <laughs> yes, I'm going to have you stand up. I'm saying, if you believe that that Jesus was resurrected and therefore you can trust that you'll be resurrected, that belief... Put your thumb up. <laughs> <laughs> Put your hands in the air. With all eyes closed and all heads bowed. <laughs> Didn't mean for that to sound like an altar call. I did intentionally mean to use, uh, I guess, conditional language because I know for me sometimes I I actually truly believe it, sometimes I I don't and I don't and I don't <laughs> know if I feel this thing. The idea though is if you truly believe that you will be raised to life, that you don't have to be scared of dying anymore. So that is how the New Testament sees this first fear: what happens to me when I die. The second one is how will God <laughs> bring about? Uh, justice in the world. And and this is why I wanted to read that piece from Psalm 99. It talks about how God was forgiving and punished their evil. What you have consistently in Paul, in Hebrews, in Acts, throughout the New Testament, is believing in Jesus will get you eternal life and will not spare you accountability from God. And I, like, I know that... <laughs> It makes me sound like one of these uh, crazy preachers that's just trying to like, you know, beat up the sixteen-year-old and not masturbating anymore or something. Why I think that's actually an important idea if you're going to hold to to Christianity, is because I need to know that that the mega pastor who's uh, abusing women in his church does not get a pass for that evil, especially if they're using Christianity to gain that power in the first place. I need to know that Christianity is not a pass, a get-out-of-jail-free card for that person. Because many, many people, including Christian Nazi-supporting Germany in church history, have done great evil. And it is not good news to me to think that just because they believed a certain set of doctrines, that they are not going to be held accountable. And when I mean held accountable, I mean if you just brought back all of Nazi Germany and put them in my heaven— (laughs) <laughs> just because they believed uh that Jesus died an atoning death for them uh that's not good news, right? well, I think where Calvinism goes with this is to say if they if their
0: life doesn't actually change, if they're not sanctified, then they weren't ever saved in the first place right so we have to we still have to see fruit so i don't I don't necessarily hear that a lot the idea that like just because they
1: prayed a prayer and nothing changed about their life they're they're good um right, you know what I mean I do but he, so here's what I'm trying to say. But, but that's separating like that accountability from what we've been calling hell. And I'm just saying they're one cohesive idea. No, I got you, yeah. Right? So we've taken one form of accountability and judgment and punishment, and we've said it's going to be this thing, and that's the thing you got to get out of. And then you're like, but there will be this little slap on the wrist if you're bad. And I'm saying, no, it's one cohesive idea. Like Evil people need to be held accountable or else there is no justice, and we have nothing really truly to, to give us any hope at the end of the day. And that's true of me, and that's true of you, regardless of your religion, right? Who is Jesus' hardest on? The, the uh, religious leaders in his own day. Those were the people he talked to to about Gehenna. <laughs> uh, so my point is that the same frame of ideas, uh, which lead us to this idea of like fiery judgment and hell, which makes it into this little bridge, you know, infographic caricature, are the same ideas about Christians being held accountable uh, for the way they treat other people. So it doesn't make sense to turn one of them into this mechanical doctrine of a place called hell and then diminish the others and act like they're separate things, right? So again, just to try to simplify, I think where there is consensus is Christianity, the belief in, in the gospel is, is hopefully, the idea is it's freeing us from, uh, from being scared of dying uh, and it's and it's not freeing us from being scared of ultimate accountability, and I think the important piece why why I am emphasizing this is one just kind of help us make sense of all the uh, complexity of ideas, but two they both have to do with justice. They they both should point to us these ideas should point us to being more just people. The whole point of and this is where Paul actually uh, uh, and Jesus before he even died uses uh, the idea of belief in a resurrection as a, as a motivation is to say, you can stop being so scared of the empire or the religious leaders or uh, the powers that be and stop basically be, becoming complicit in justice in order to save your own life. It is better, it's the famous line, it's better to lose your life (laughs) than to save it, right? Uh, The idea is that to do true good, like to truly do justice in the world, to speak truth to power, throughout most of history would get you killed. And so the the ultimate motivational rationale, the psychology around this hope in a resurrection, this hope in eternal life, is that it would motivate everybody to do the just thing regardless of the outcome. Now, again, I've shared, like, I don't know if I can believe that all the time. Sometimes I do, sometimes I don't. I also believe that it's still the right thing to do, even if you don't have that hope. Hmm. But the point is how, how few people will actually do that, will actually give up their own life on, th- like, the barest of whims, that they might ever get to see their family again, right? Jesus is the one who did it, who tested it, <laughs> right? The New Testament talks about Jesus as the pioneer. He went ahead to do the brave thing that everyone else was was basically too scared to do so that it wouldn't be as scary for people to, to come after him. Yeah. So again, I struggle to believe that on a day-in, uh, day day-out basis, if I'm being honest, but I, I do find that whole realm of beliefs that ultimately what Christianity is doing is freeing us from fear so that we can be more brave to do the right thing, to, to, to do just. It's really, really compelling. Totally. Yeah. And then the second piece is that, okay, so that's who you are. So you're a Jesus person. Uh, you've said that you're on the side of the most righteous and just human who ever lives. Well, don't think <laughs> that if you then start using that tribe to gain power and privilege for yourself at the expense of other people that you will somehow bypass God's justice. I also think that's a beautiful and compelling uh, rationale. And I think it's necessary because where I've seen some of the most evil in the world is actually in the church. So I need that uh, you know, other edge to the sword uh, to match God's mercy so that that I don't have to think, oh, that guy who abused me because he was in the club God's never going to deal with that, you know?
0: Well, and don't you want, don't we all want ju- like justice? I mean, obviously I don't want to go to hell, but like, don't we want, like if hell was off the table, don't you want to become a better person? Don't you want to be corrected and to grow and to, like that's sort of what like any good organization and company, like the, you know, the progressive forward thinking companies that are out there, are sort of sort of all built on is that everyone's trying to get better and grow and change. And I mean, that's sort of loosely what the church is is, is based on too, like, don't we want to, as Christians, shouldn't be, shouldn't we be the ones that are more than anyone wanting to get better and wanting to improve, <laughs> whether you know whatever happens after this life, not just in this life, but whatever life is possible after that? Don't you want to keep getting better and growing and and have the correction of, of God, um, the justice, the uh, judgment in that sense to, to help you become a better person? Okay, Tim, we got to wrap this up. I'm going to ask you one question, and then I'm going to have you do one thing. (laughs) Um, And I want you to agree. Say yes. Just do it. Say yes. Okay. Oh, wow. I can have you do anything. Okay. Um, Except that I wouldn't say yes. I demanded to say okay. My slight rebellion. (laughs) Okay. Okay. So, in 30 seconds, I want you to tell me, what is your ideal solution then if you could if you could transform everyone to think this thing about hell based on the bible and also on what you think is good and beautiful what would that thing be because i think people could just hear this as like "Hey, you're just tearing down the common uh, conception of hell you're uh you're just diminishing our confidence in that, and which I think is, is necessary. We need to do that because we've seen that there, you know, we can't have a whole lot of confidence in like this. This is what hell is exactly, because the biblical writers didn't have that consensus. But what would be your perfect solution thirty seconds ago?
1: Yeah, to to back up and and think about the existential questions that are real and there that our false oversimplifications of an idea called hell we're we're trying to get to. That is that death is scary and anxiety-inducing. It sucks, and it terrifies us, and it always has. And we have to be willing to admit that and to think about that. And we've all asked what happens on the other side of death. And there are some answers that have been put forth by various authors in the Bible. They don't agree. At times they do, at times they do not. Uh, but ultimately, what the early Christians believed was that Jesus was giving us the chance at a, a second chance of at life and so, if you can believe that uh, the idea is that 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 is good news. Secondly is that the second question is is how is God going to fix this world, which is full of evil people and evil immortal gods, which you probably don't spend much time thinking about, and the other pieces of hell are are trying to answer that existential question. And none of the authors—oops, time's up. Uh, I'm going another 30 seconds. Uh, none of the authors claimed to have, uh, to have understood the mechanics or been able to see how exactly it was all going to go down. They walked with humility. They disagreed with one another, and yet we entered all of their disagreements into what we've called the Bible. And But where they are consistent is that we can trust that the universe is on the side of justice— Because the God that created the universe is committed to enacting justice. That idea, I think, is about as far as we can go. And then where I think we should land emotionally, no matter where you get to and like it hurts your brain to think of it unless it's in terms of an annihilationist view or there's still a part of you that reads this verse and it seems like there's going to be some sort of like prison that lasts forever. Those are mental gymnastics to try to figure out how to conceptualize it. What I think is important emotionally, psychologically, in terms of how you live your life and treat one another, is that if you are a Christian who believes the, the basics that the Jesus proved to the world that God loves the entire world enough to, to die for it, that where that should take you is hoping that even the person who has hurt you the most would one day be able to be changed and thus saved uh, to lead you away from a place of desiring vengeance and to a place of actually being able to love your enemy. And as hard as that is, and with all the constraints, like I've said, you we intrinsically want separation from our abusers. Uh, that's not wrong. I'm not, I'm not saying to diminish that. Uh, but the hope, I believe the posture that is the most Christian is a posture toward a kind of universalism, uh, that, that essentially here's, here's an important piece to me. It's two pieces. One is that if, if our way of doing Christianity is to say, here's what I think would be best, but I don't think God is that good. If that's really where we end up, like, Hey, I want a world in which everybody's saved, but I don't think God wants that world or I don't think God is capable of that world. You have actually broken some of the basics of Christian orthodoxy in that way of construing things because <laughs> some of the basics of Christian orthodoxy are that God, that God is the utmost good, that God is perfect love uh, and that, that God is the strongest force in the universe who's capable of actually bringing about God's perfect love. So, I think it's it's almost sociopathic to have a religious view where we say I can imagine a world that's that's really good, but the world that I think God's actually going to bring about is an is an eternal t- torture chamber. Beyond the torture chamber, I think that way of thinking is detrimental to you and the people around you. And, and then the last piece, uh, I'll just pull a quote from David Bentley Hart. I think part of what's at stake here when we talk about hell, again, is is actually what we're saying it is true of God. And there's a line from, uh, Dave Bentley Hart that says, uh, basically referring to the kind of traditional view, uh, and especially in reference from, um, uh, in reference to original sin and the way that's impacted the whole hell conversation. He says, thus evangelization is a race to save as many souls as possible from God. Well, wow. I don't think you can have a productive and fruitful and decent Christianity if in your view of Christianity, Jesus, or or especially you and your evangelization, uh, bringing people to Jesus is saving people from God. I think the basics of, of Christianity are that God is saving us from ourselves, and, and from powers of evil, uh, and saving us from death, not from, Je- not Jesus saving us from God. So, however you construe <laughs> hell, make sure in my in my view. That's not the way you're thinking about things. If if you're within that container, like nobody freaking knows, right. you know, like be, go with Matthew, go with Luke, who the heck cares? Uh, just don't make Christianity uh, news to the world that God wants to kill them or torture them, but Jesus is going to somehow uh, escape them through a back door. Amen.
0: You, I was going to give you 30 seconds to share that. And then five minutes to do a rapid fire round with anything you missed. But because you used six minutes on your 30 second window, <laughs> I still now have this, I can ask you to do whatever. And I, I'm not gonna have you do the rapid fire now because I literally have to go. But what I will have you do is uh, sing our exit music here. Give us give us something. Give us a little something, Tim, or a beat or something, you know? Get the people going. Mm bop. hmm bop. Ooh. You've been listening to almost heretical. Oh no, you gotta keep going and I'll and I'll read the credits oh. uh over Come uh, on.
1: Trying to think of something that goes with hell. Speaking this is kind of like a little bit of goes right? with like, hell, huh? uh... <laughs> A little, little creed. So this, this is punishment. See, like I, I, I loved
0: him and I want the best for him. And so this is, I'm not going to torture you could him. Just,
1: you could loop it for like six hours on the back end of the podcast and it would essentially be eternal, eternal, uh, eternal. Conscious <laughs> subconscious torment. Subconscious torment. <laughs> just play it really low, looped underneath the entire podcast. So and then you, your
0: little case here for me looping it is you just because you don't want to keep singing. You don't want to keep singing basically. So just like take what you've already done and then loop it. No. No, come on, keep going. Give me something. I'm gonna read some credits. Come on. All right. Uh, thanks for listening to Almost Heretical. Um, this is our series on Hell. I don't know if there'll be another one.
1: There, there might be, and I, I might go along with the credits here today. <laughs> Ain't no more Hell because it went so well. Did three episodes, then we go into them. Farewell, Rob Bell. Farewell, Rob. I'll see you in Hell. <laughs> all right. Uh, you can find out more at
0: almostheretical.com, and you can also ask us any questions or share your stories. Um, We love hearing that stuff. And every day when we get an email from a different listener that we haven't heard from before, it's just so exciting and gives us so much energy to keep going with this show. Where'd my music go? Where'd where'd it go? All right. This is it. We got to cut this. (laughs) Later, friends. Peace.